when Chris presented his finding, they were, well, it's nothing new for us. We have been living through this kind of seasonal hunger for generations. We don't call it seasonal hunger. We call it Julio, that is July. And we ask them about, do you have like recipes that you use during this uh, period of seasonal hunger that you want to share with us? Almost 800 recipes we collect. And it's not the lack of knowledge. You know, there is a lot of knowledge. And I think one piece that we try to say, we put together local knowledge, academic knowledge, the NGO, local NGO, international NGO, is all this when you, we start talking about collaboration. You know, it's okay how we put all those pieces together. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. On the second season, we bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people who work with food in incredible ways. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. I'm here today with Chris Bacon and Mario Eugenia Flores Gomez. Chris Bacon is an environmental social scientist whose work has focused on food security and food sovereignty in northern Nicaragua and more recently in California. He takes a participatory action research approach to his work and is a professor at Santa Clara University. Mario Eugenia Flores Gomez is a social psychologist and community organizer with more than 15 years of experience working in Central America and California for peace, human rights, and food security. So welcome to Delicious Revolution. Thank Chris you. And Great to be here. Um, so I just wanted to start talking about working on food security from two different perspectives. And, and can you talk a little bit about, about your work together? You're, you're a husband and wife team. And you've collaborated a lot, but also your work is a lot about collaboration. Can you can you just talk a little bit about um, how the collaboration between you two started and how that's how that's grown? Well, that's a big question to start out with, <laughs> Devin. But um, I would say that the work started. Um, Really, in to borrow the words of Maria Eugenia's dad, when my parents were meeting her parents and we were talking about getting married, thanks to the blessings from some larger spirit and because of the revolution, because in Nicaragua, and that's the revolution I'm talking about right now, specifically the revolution to overthrow in 1979 um, the Somoza dictatorship, which had run the country like a large plantation um, for about 45 years. Um, and... That's what brought my mom to Nicaragua back in the 1980s as doing solidarity work um, to to slow the 
the sale of arms to an exacerbation of the violence in the region um, and to support uh, the more transformative aspects of the revolution, like the literacy campaigns and women's rights. And so that's why I, when I received a call, when I re- after I applied to Peace Corps, I was living in Washington, D.C., after my undergraduate work, um, and I got an offer from Peace Corps to go to Nicaragua or to Panama. That's why I chose to go to Nicaragua. And after my experience in northern Nicaragua as a Peace Corps volunteer, I certainly, that has taught me Spanish, a lot about cultural differences and deeper reflections I need to do on my own. And then coming back to the United States, getting involved, organizing around fair trade, doing anti-oppression training with, with as part of that work. Um, and going back to Nicaragua again before we met, in fact, um, I was working on a dissertation research looking at the impact of fair trade and organic coffee as a mitigation strategy in the context of the um, depression and the global prices of coffee. And so I was doing that work, working with the cooperatives um, when I was went out to uh, went out to dinner at an Italian restaurant with a bunch of the guys and the agronomists and the marketing consultants from there. And there was only one big table in in this Italian restaurant in Nicaragua, and there was no other tables. And half the tables are already taken up. And they're like, look, there's not enough room for any more seats, but if you want to share the other half a table, you can go to this table. And so I was on the other side, one end of the table with sort of my crew from the co-ops, largely male. Um, and the other end of the table, there was this beautiful woman and a couple other friends also that were working with Mario Henia, and I'll let her tell you what they were up to. Um, but the short story is there was a, a mutual friend who worked at a women's health clinic um, and had done a lot of alternative medicine in Nicaragua, and she was on Mario Henia's end, end of the table. So that was how we got the introduction for this intercultural collaboration. And from my perspective, I would say that collaboration and solidarity is what you learn when you grew up in a context of a civil war. I grew up in that, in that really tough region in Nicaragua during the 80s. And it's the northern border of Nicaragua that's really close to Honduras. And since I, I think all my memories are, are related with collaboration, you needed to collaborate in order to survive. And then, yes, you learn more approach and techniques. And, and by the time that I met Chris and I was already learning how to collaborate with more like bigger approach, like rural and urban collaboration, interdisciplinary collaboration, and all the um, bicultural, multicultural collaboration. I was working for the Canadian government at that time in Nicaragua. And it was really interesting. I will say, uh, first, we learn collaboration and solidarity, and then we got the marriage. And then it took a couple of years for us to understand that we were working together. It was when one person, it is a roster, the Santa Cruz coffee roster, and she said, well, it seems like you are working really well together. And we look at each other and say, are we? <laughs> and yes, we were. We were working together. And we were doing all kind of research from counting trees, with conducting focus groups, and working with a United Students for Fair Trade, and different things with farmers. But uh, I think it, we came to confront a different challenge when we become a family. 
and living in California and some months in Nicaragua and having a child who was 100% breastfeed child is different situation. And when she starts talking, her vocabulary includes words like seed banks, Cadas, that are the centers of the food distribution in Nicaragua, and uh, droughts, and crops, and varieties, and uh, climate change, and all those, you know, and we were like, whoa, it seems like the whole family is working together, not just as, as a couple, but also you have to face the rhythms and, and times and other kinds of things. And, but it seems like still now that she's already six years old, um, we are proud that uh, we are making it possible. Yes. How long have you been working on the on food the food security, security project? project? Yeah. So six years. Yeah, it's yeah. been six years, and I mean, I think that what makes a collaboration possible is really the willing. You have to have the willingness to go and risk something, and to I mean, coming from California in the U.S. And to laugh at yourself um, and let people laugh at you. And then also to be willing to have enough solidarity with the principles of the people that you're going to be working with to to really to not try to objectively judge every single fact that is presented. You need to triangulate the data that comes out, but to also see like there is a real issue here. Right. And I think. Well, and they'll test you. Any good community that you're going to be collaborating with is going to test you multiple times to see the depth of your collaboration and where you, and I think it's good to show them that you're willing to work in solidarity and give something up. I mean, trust is about giving something up in anticipation of reciprocation over time, mm -hmm. right? And this is what Eleanor Ostrom, a Nobel economist, prize winning economist defined it as. So you, so you do to really trust you give something up with the idea that it's going to be some payback over time or some broader purpose that you're working for. And, before people let you in, they'll test you. And I think it's healthy. I, mean, I still remember working before I met Mario Eugenia with a, a cooperative in Matagalpa, you know, and they, um, there was a time I wanted to do a, a focus, uh, re returning results back to farmers, sort of basic principle of good ethical research practice as well as participatory action research. And I had this big event planned and I was going to like give them the, the copies of their interviews and we're going to talk about the processes of empowerment and uneven development. And there was issues in the co-ops, of course. And, you know, one of the leaders of the co-op, the president of the co-op at the time said, you know, we're not exactly sure what you're up to. Can you cancel this thing? Right. And I was a little upset because it's all really hard to organize one of these things, but I did because that's what I was requested to do. And that's a strong partner. And of course, after I explained what I was doing, everybody was fine. And we did it exactly as I said. And I always say what I see. That's what I insist as a researcher is that you're able to say what you see to a broader audience. And so that's, there's always a negotiation in the Segovia's project. We got started. Um, so I had a re relationship previously working with Proto Co-op, which is a, a, a leading smallholder cooperative organization in Nicaragua. It represents about 2,300 families and about 10,000 people, over 1,100 certified organic producers. 35% are female farmers. 35% of the members currently, and they yeah. con continue to expand that. And so I worked with them previously. There was an opportunity because Green Mountain Coffee Roasters was starting to become more concerned about periods of seasonal hunger because they finally read some of the papers that we've been writing. I've written Ernesto Mendez, other folks and traveled themselves, you know, and part of it was Rick Pizer really. And sort of realizing that the sort of dog and pony show that happens when donors or large scale coffee buyers come into town, like behind that happy smile, there's often 
a period of the year or moments like with all of us when things are really difficult and that one of those difficulties and the most common form of food insecurity is seasonal hunger. So really soon after Rosalia was born is when there was an agriculture short course in Vermont and is when I started drafting the report, uh, a project proposal for working with the Segovias. Mario Henny had already introduced into the team. I'm going to pass this to Mario Henny because she has been leading the component of this project with CAN doing the development work. And I've been leading the sort of research component of it. So it took us a while to sort of figure all these pieces out. But the early stages was like Rosalia was a couple weeks, a couple months old. And you were really, I was, we had a division of labor at that time that was gendered where I was working on writing some of this project, a lot of it, um, in collaboration with the folks at Protect Co-op. And um, essentially, the goal was the reason that one of the reasons we wrote is because I saw this persistence of seasonal hunger, a well-organized co-op that's transparent. You know, if you had to name the top five fair trade co-ops in the world, you would pick Product Co-op every time. Um, it had a very strong, charismatic leader who represents smallholder interests um, to anybody and everybody. And so, Marilyn Anyway, what's Plesa, one of your findings as a researcher, but it's a well-known... Um, yes. Is farmers, is not a new topic for them. When Chris presented his finding, they were, well, it's nothing new <laughs> for us. And we have been living through this kind of seasonal hunger for generations. We don't call it seasonal hunger. Mm-hmm. We call um the... Uh, they call Julio, that is July, the, but the seasonal hunger period is extended. The worst month is July, and this is the, the reason that they call the Julio. And the indigenous perspective give you all kinds of mechanisms to confront. And we have uh, rit- rituals, too, to confront, to prepare psychological, prepare yourself, prepare your whole family, prepare the community to confront and to live through the hard situation every single year. And it was nothing new. It's just, okay, you are presenting something that really matched our experience. And I think the new thing is about talking together, yeah. saying, okay, we have been talking about that, but it seems like nobody wanted to pay attention because it's so normal. And it's, it looks like it's not interesting for a project. And this is the reason we have to concentrate improving soil fertility or improve the coffee gels or improve, you know, uh, how to be pest resistant because this is the part that is important for the coffee buyers. But hunger, they don't care about it. So, and the time that we start talking, okay, let's open up this topic. I think this was a new experience for everyone. And saying we are taking it seriously. Because the other thing is when you do your research and come back, and it will say no, everyone come back to present results. And most of the time, people just do the research and never come back there. Yeah, you, if you are, have access to read English, you will read a summary, but most of the time you even don't have access to internet to mm-hmm. see what come out about what uh, you were supposed to interview for. As a third visit that we were talking about the same thing, they say, okay, it seemed like we were going deep in this situation. And I think it took us a couple of years, no, to really 
open up and start yeah. talking every time or we apply in the survey that we apply in the beginning of the project during the diagnostic and we ask them about do you have like recipes that you use during this uh, period of seasonal hunger that you want to share with us almost 800 recipes we collect and it's not the lack of knowledge you know, there is a lot of knowledge. And, and I think one piece that we try to say, we put together uh, is local knowledge, this academic knowledge, the NGO, local NGO, international NGO, is all this when you we start talking about collaboration. You know, it's okay how we put all those pieces together. And I will talk right now about protagonism. How make me sick when just one person want to celebrate one thing and say, okay, it's about me. No, it's not about me. It's a collective effort. Uh, and the thing that we have to celebrate is that, how we work together and start looking for solutions. And I know that in California, it's nothing new because people work together here too. Yeah. Uh, and the, all this relationship with Nicaragua, the solidarity that we were talking about before, how a lot of people f uh, from the United States were in solidarity with Nicaragua during the war and even before. And I think you wanted to add something, no? No, I would just say on on the collaboration, I think building that collective vision that we did together, really, and taking that risk and realizing none of this would be possible. I mean, I, could, I couldn't have done any of this if there hadn't been collaboration within the family first and leadership and ideas, not just like taking care of the kids, it's leadership and ideas rooted in both her academic training, as well as her cultural understanding of coming up in Nicaragua that Maria Eugenia has contributed as well as coordinating the projects that's gone forward. But it's also been the collaboration from the cooperative, from the local nonprofit, um, um, which is CS Danique and from the community Ivory ecology network. Right. Yes. And I think, in the beginning, the early challenge, because I think it's important to sort of see there's a couple key moments in the project, and maybe we should describe a little bit more of the broad contours. Uh, but one key thing that I think goes to collaboration across the board is, is this going to be a collaboration? To me, like getting things started, the question is, is this going to be another development project? And that's the de facto starting point for many projects because that's what people are used to they're doing too much there's time is too crunched and so you you look at something and say what can i get out of this as an as an organization and as an individual and so we had to overcome and as or as a researcher right so it's not you know we're probably more guilty than most in the protagonism right so we had to overcome that to say can we collect can we construct a common vision of what's possible and then can we be inspired not by that vision to do the hard work of personal transformation and organizational changes to make it happen. And so we really bet on this partnership model. We shared the budget for this whole project with the, with the community partner. Mario Henry continues to do the same thing and negotiate. They see the budget coming to can from the donor, right? That's pretty rare in development work and many projects. And we talk about the vision of, we, we set up a goal of ending seasonal hunger in this, in this region with these farmers in the Segovia in a period of 10 years. So we had a goal that we could all work for. And, and I think that was part of establishing the collaboration. What would this, the, and I think I was, I totally agree with Mario Henio. What is different? People knew about seasonal hunger and we started opening the dialogue to talk about, talk about it. And it's also what are, but even with all these projects and all these certifications, right? 
hunger persists. And we were able to get this at a broader level on the agenda for the Specialty Coffee Association of America. And together with people like Rick Peitzer and other folks launch a coalition to end hunger in the coffee, in the coffee lands everywhere, which still has a long way to go, but we've made a little bit of progress, at least raising that dialogue within the industry. But really the deep work is with the farmers in these communities and with the local other stakeholders in the process. And I think laying out the strategy of the project, which might be of interest to the, to the listeners, um, I'll let you, um, I'll, I'll let you talk about the current strategy. Well, I will go back to the to the collaboration. I think a key point was to talk and also to sign. We sign, we can, and Prodecop and CS Technic, 10 years commitment to a start. We say, okay, this is one project that we have a fund for three years, but we are willing to collaborate at least for 10 years to start seeing some positive results. And, and we were open to that, even without having the money. We were open, and, and, and I will recognize Khan as an organization who have been supporting, like openly supporting the, the work that we have been coordinating. It, they are not like, you know, sometimes when you have worked for a U.S. NGO, you have to become a, like a kind of supervisor and you have to go and make sure everything is working and this and that. And you invest your time just writing reports for here. It's a completely different story. They knew how we were working and they trust us and, and they support the work and always asking how everything's going, how we can, you know, put a little more energy toward the, how we can learn about the process that you have been coordinating there. It was amazing. We, we, we were feeling all the time the support from the organization and not just asking us to, to, to show up the, the, the report and also the level of flexibility and how the farmers wanted to have some uh, investment in one thing that was different than in the project. And, and we were open to do that too. Uh, it was a 15% chance to change inside the budget some of the uh, money. And that flexibility is imp important because you can keep finding different challenges and you decide, okay, with the farmer, now this money have to be reallocated. And uh, we didn't expect the drought and say, okay, we need to buy more seeds because the variety have been disappearing to do farmer-led experimentation. Or we have to invest a little more money in food. Or we have to invest more money in how to improve um, the seed saving or uh, buy more silos for the households because they need to, because all the poor harvest uh, losses. And, yeah, and they are so, and the strategy right now, I think they are more centered in a, Related with the finding, we found out that the fruit trees are important to confront seasonal hunger. And we have been planting more than 20,000 fruit trees. And we will, and some of them, I will say 15,000 of the uh, fruit trees that were planted are already, they already have the first harvest. We had lemons and oranges, at least 18 varieties of, of the fruits. 
and we are keep we are in division that we want to keep uh, planting more fruit trees because we know that is important for the food and for sale and have extra incomes. And the other is the uh, soil fertility improvement, not just one with one technique. We have a combination from the agroecology perspective and we have a whole mosaic of possibilities. And we have been working with relocalizing food during the period of hunger, also the period when the basic grains are really expensive. And and we realized with the farmer that it was important to buy the grains when they are cheap or cheaper and store them with agroecological methods. And that means that we are not using chemicals. It means that we are using the local knowledge. They use so specifically me- using like the hojas de madero negro, like um, uh, leaves from a madero negro tree and ash that are being mixed in with the grains or sometimes from neem trees and then taking them out and drying them periodically. So different strategies for exact for for grain storage to reduce the post-harvest law, crop loss. And those are one of the strategies. There's other ones too. Yeah, and they are, I will mention one simple. When they want to plant seeds, the way that they cure the seeds is they mix garlic and they use like a natural dye uh, to color the seed because in that way, when the birds see the, the seeds look like pink, it is not attractive for them and they don't eat it because it looks different than corn. And and they have more level, more chance of survival on the soil. And th- there is all kind. We can the go types all- of soil fertility kinds of strategies that we're talking about are, for example, using the microorganisms dyna- to dynamicize the, the, the spray on organic fertilizers. And so sometimes they will go actually to the um, to the surrounding forest, recover some of the leaves and the um, and the topsoil there, and then bring those that soil back, and then incubate in 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 like a big fifty gallon barrel with a mixture of milk and molasses and other products. They'll incubate the microorganisms that are in the soil. They call it micro microorganismos de la montaña, and then they will after incubating those and and, and basically growing a concentrated colony of these microorganisms. They will dilute it and use backpack sprayers to spray that on to increase the sort of the foliant growth and the and fertilize the plants. So these are some of the different strategies, these recipes that have been sort of moving around Central America over a period of time. There's not a lot of empirical evidence, re- systematic research on the impact, but people f- see the evidence on, on their farms. And, and these are some of the types of practices. I think when we when we talk about hunger and poverty, it's easy to imagine a kind of desperation where there's not a lot of possibility. But it sounds like what you're describing is like this explosion of creativity and experimentation as a way to use what's already there to to address hunger. So so I wanted to, to hear a little about from you, like kind of starting at the beginning of the project. What did you find um, during those first surveys? Like, what was the experience of hunger like? And then what has the response been? What kinds of strategies have come up? Where did they come from? And, and how is that, like, how's that opened new possibilities over that time? So I'll start by talking about some of the research from mm-hmm. the first stage that was conducted in 2009, 2010. And then perhaps Marihani can talk about the response in the project or also even your own experience of 
from coming from the region of what this period is is like. Um, we found in that survey that there was an average of about three month, three months, three months and one week. So we asked people, you know, is it is a whole long survey which took, you know, went house to house to interviewing people in their homes and asked them a whole set of agro, agroecological, agronomic, and livelihood based questions. But in the that one of the key results that was certainly served as an indicator for the work in the project was that people lived through about three months and three months and one week on average of hunger during the year. Now, what does seasonal hunger actually mean? We've been learning about it as we go. And it was interesting. The agronomists in the co-op weren't that aware of it. And they knew kind of broadly about the Julio, right? But they didn't focus on it. And so and this was, this, are there, are there certain months where it's difficult for you to meet your basic food needs? We didn't at that time begin to ask about the coping mechanisms, which helps us to, so those are, that's, that's kind of a, like a time dimension understanding of seasonal hunger, right? And in hunger, food security, as we know, has temporal dimension, has questions of access, food utilization, and food availability. So in this temporal dimension, we realize there's an issue. In subsequent interviews and focus groups, people said, we've used some of the same experience-based measures for food insecurity that are used by the World Food Program and designed developed by people like um, Devereaux and others uh, at the UN that essentially talks about coping mechanisms in terms of skipping meals, eating less preferred foods, watering down the soups, um, selling crop harvest for a low price. So a lot of times people are so strapped for cash during June, July, and August. If you look at the seasonal calendar, after planting in May, it's before that first harvest comes in, after the last harvest, um, long after the harvest from the last corn and bean harvest has run out, and there's fewer opportunities for off-farm employment. And so um, we we the people would sell their future corn or even their future coffee harvest at very low prices to local intermediaries who are giving them necessary cash, which may have been used to purchase food or for a medical expense or could have just been wasted, right? But w- when we start to compare this, and this is where we pulled in some of the theory in a subsequent paper, is this is really accepting a low exchange entitlement. So there is food available, right? Um, but there's not food being accessed in the types of food that they need or or want or prefer in their homes during these critical months. And so th- and so understanding their ability the way that they're situated to relative to the market and and information flows and local not, local organizations actually getting and linking with the farmers we saw sometimes farmers were selling they would sell for example their future corn um, or their future coffee harvest to get a little bit of cash, they'll say, okay, I will promise to sell you one quintal, 100 pounds of coffee, if you give me two 200 pounds of corn right now. And usually, if you look at the prices in the market at the time when they're making these commitments, so they're expect they're accepting a two-to-one exchange. But if you look at the prices in the market, they should have been getting eight or 10 to one, right? They should have been getting 800 pounds of corn now for offering a future 100 pounds of dry green coffee that's ready for export. But they accepted these really um, awful terms of trade from their perspective because they needed the cash so bad. And the farmers knew they were getting screwed. I remember an interview saying, we know we're getting screwed, but we have no alternative to access this. Most of the time, they can't get access to credit because credit would cost uh, – the, the, the commercial banks won't loan to them. And even the intermediaries are going to be charging them up to 8% a month, a month. If they get any kind of credit, right? So this is the kind of bind. And so that's when people sometimes take more drastic coping mechanisms. What it look like selling that future crop harvest could also look like selling part of your land. 
pulling your kid out of school and sending them somewhere else to work so you can get some extra revenue. So I want to understand a little bit more about the depth of the, of the lean months. And I think this is why I've learned a lot from Mario Henny because she has actually growing up in that region and knowing people from both the her own indigenous background and also from research that we have done can help us give a broader context for what the lean months actually mean in this context. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about um, some of the research findings in terms of what we thought could be developed strategically coming out of this and then where it actually went can go back and forth. I mentioned before that there is a lot of knowledge related with the seasonal hunger and the, and we are talking about farmers that, that are small scale farmers. It's really small farm. Uh, the average is two manzanas. That yeah, it means like, like three, one. About three acres. Even less, two less, and a half acres. Less than that. And it's, it's hard to survive as a family who live from coffee from small farm. And farmers in California know that even if they own a bigger farm, because small farm here means like a lot bigger than the average uh, small scale coffee farm in Nicaragua. And there are a lot of families who don't own even a little piece of land to cultivate uh, some crops and be able to have some food during the seasonal hunger. And I grew up in that kind of family that didn't have land. My dad used to work with uh, with four other farmers, bigger farmers, and uh, to have a little bit of cash and sometimes just a little bit of um, corn. And he never was able to have, uh, to provide enough uh, food for the house. But guess what? The other thing that I found out is that the real farmer was my mother, who in a small piece of land, really tiny, the size of the, I will say, little bit bigger than a backyard here, she was able to cultivate at least, at least 10 varieties of mangoes, like 10 varieties of fruit trees, like uh, citrus. And she had like, Hundreds of vegetables and different types of vegetables and, and corn and toward everything. And, yeah, everything, sweet potatoes, potatoes, uh, yuca, cassava, and we have squashes, different types of squashes, mustard, all kind of uh, leafy greens and, to eat. And she have chickens, hundreds of chickens there. Uh, we had all, was, I never had the sensation that I wasn't poor from the food, um, kind of a uh, point of view, but it was because my mother, she was able to produce, but she was working constantly with the soil all the time feeding the soil because it was her indigenous root. And she was feeding the soil and the soil was feeding us and preserving seeds. And I remember her like saving the, helping us, we were helping her in how to extract the seed, how to dry the seed and save it them for the next season or roasting the pumpkin seeds and, and eating them. Things that people forget about 
you know, people worry about meat and, and, and make sure the protein is there. And they forget that grew up, we grew up having protein that is in the seeds, and pumpkin seeds, and beans, and other kind of seeds. And was until I was in university that I realized, whoa, you know, it was only my, you know, suppose that the father is the provider. And, and he doesn't like to hear that he didn't provide enough because I had a long conversation with him about that. <laughs> but the, and then while we twisted it around, it was okay. We won't complain about that. We will celebrate the fact that my mother is a farmer that was able to feed. We are 12. She was able to feed all of us, to take care of us, because also my father was 10 years in, uh, in the war, and we needed to cultivate everything we had. And, and I remember the other families saying, can you give me some mangoes? Can you give me some squash? Can you? And they have the same piece of land, just a tiny piece. And my mother say, why they don't plant mango tree? Why they don't plant an orange tree? Because during the diagnostic, we start, we develop the whole spreadsheet. Say, okay, if you plant this tree, what is the time that you harvest them? And a lot of the fruit trees produce trees, uh, fruits during the period of hunger, July and August. You have mangoes, you have oranges, you, you have hocote. Since April, you have hocote. And there is food. But sometimes when we were talking with the farmers, they say, you know what? We know that, but it seems like something in between generations, we have been losing some of the knowledge. And sometimes we just forget about, concentrate in the coffee, coffee production that we forgot about, that we need to make sure that the uh, plant that produce food during the a period of hunger, we need to make sure those plants have to be on the soil too, yeah. in order to have enough food. And, and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the question that helped get us start on that is when we were like, why are people paying to buy a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi in a local store way up in the top of the mountains when they have almost no cash at all while the mangoes are rotting on the ground? And that's still a question that we're working to understand. But it certainly has to do with this part of it, the answer. And I, and I think I'd like to do more ethnographic work too, thinking about how people manage their time. But it certainly has to do a little bit with what Madi Wahini was describing in terms of forgetting some of the useful strategies that they've used before. Um, and I would say in terms of... And one thing before you yeah. continue, the female participation. Yeah. You know, I think food security... If you want to address food security, and this is no new things, everyone has been talking about that, you have to include the female knowledge. Not because, just because they are nursing the kids. Which is where food security well, yeah, is. It is food, it is food right. security. But because they have a lot to say and a lot to teach others. And, and is that open a little bit more the family conversation? When we were asking, uh, conducting some interviews about the most significant change, a lot of families say, you know what? 
the most significant change in my family, now we are working as a family. Mm-hmm. The mother is working in the garden. The father is also working in the garden. And the kids also had important role to play. And it's, this is not just expecting that the male will provide the food and all my knowledge is not visible. It's nobody recognizes it and I have to be angry because of that. And no, it's like we have to start talking and protocol had years of experience talking about gender equality and all those kinds of things, but not related with food security. Mm-hmm. And this is a new step. We are including this topic inside the dialogue with them. And and have, have been becoming really very interesting in how they identify as a pos- it as a positive uh, positive change in their life. And you can see it. It's not just words. You can see in facts that what families are working together and what families are in the process to work together to in order to produce enough food to eat. I think related to that is. Uh when we were coming up after doing this diagnostic and this response, we had some initial sort of strategic lines in, in our like trying to lay it out in, in a, a little bit and as a, as a strategy in the response, building off of local knowledge, linking agroecology and new strategies. So it's not just only off of recovering what's in the past, because for whatever issue, the combination of the past and the current, you know, political economic paradigm er, and day-to-day interactions were not sufficient to eliminate these periods of seasonal hunger, right? And um, so it's like, how do we combine the past with some interesting and potentially promising new strategies, right? And so there was kind of agroecological diversification of the both the patio garden and and the, the potentially the milpa as well, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that as well as even some of the coffee farm. There was also the idea of relocalizing the food system using the fair trade cooperatives as the organizational infrastructure that has historically been focused on export and purchasing um, coffee for export and credit. They're marketing cooperatives, but they're actually multiple service cooperatives. So they're legally and organizationally capable of doing a whole wide range of services. They provide the technical assistance so we certainly worked very closely with the agronomist and technical assist- assistance team, including the gender promoter. Um, but the key component that we're interested in is how do we use a cooperative structure to relocalize the food system, focusing on corn and beans and fruits and vegetables that could be how you give access to fresh, healthy food for all, particularly during those lean months. So basically taking the fair trade concept of exporting the coffee and applying it to their own local food system, focusing on corn and beans where the co-op started to play a role in purchasing corn beans from their own members, storing it in regional centers, and then redistributing it to these community-based cooperative-led grain and seed banks to their members. And over the period of five or six years, over 100,000 pounds and more than uh, that, 300,000 300, 300, pounds, pounds has been redistributed. Yeah. The other part of the strategy, just to, uh, we'll come back to this, is and that Mario Henny was describing so well, and I think leading up to this is, both a gender and generational approach. And so the gender-based approach is something we're continuing to learn and integrate closer and closer as a strategic response in the project. And in the research, I will say my previous research has shown that there's uneven gendered response to the, you know, the impacts of the coffee crisis and impacts of, of drought. Um, and that a, the gendered response to, and I have, 
to the current context of the coffee leaf rust, we haven't, I haven't explored it empirically, right, through a systematic research. We, we definitely saw certain correlates that are linked to seasonal hunger. And that was like the second phase of research. And it was really cool to see how that was taken up in the project and run further. And, and so, for example, we ran a, a series of regression and statistical analysis, and we saw that, okay, what factors, there are some families that have shorter periods of seasonal hunger than others. What factors are correlated with these families that are reporting shorter periods of seasonal hunger? And the findings were pretty straightforward. Some things that we expect that I think is good to remember as people involved in food movement work, right? So not surprising. Some farmers that reported higher incomes reported shorter periods of seasonal hunger. Some farms that were slightly larger. Some farmers that report doing more off-farm employment. So I think it's important to remember that some of these strategies like off-farm employment um, and, you know, larger farms or higher incomes, whatever that could combine to mean, are important factors in reducing seasonal hunger, right? So we're not, and on the other hand, we also found that some of the households that reported shorter periods of seasonal hunger, and these are, these are all statistically significant findings, were the ones that weren't necessarily selling more coffee, but were the ones that um, had produced more than half the food they eat on the farm, particularly corn and beans. Um, and to some extent, and this is what, this is with the fruit tree thing that Mario Hennig keeps. We go back to this was found in a research done in 2009 and again in 2014. Farmers that reported shorter periods of seasonal hunger had uh, also had more fruit trees reported present on their farm, and an average of 35 to 40 as a, as the number. And so this is where it was really cool to see a finding like this, discussing the finding, understanding it, doing the background research, pulling the all the depth of knowledge already there, and before way before it got published. Mario Henning was already coordinating a campaign with the co-ops to plant, you know, over 20,000 fruit trees, right? Now, that's pretty small compared to what could and needs to be done in the future. So I was really – and I think what's really cool about this, to come back around to this role of both gender and generational impact, is that the youth in these communities played a really important role both in conducting the research and the interviews or the surveys. I mean, who's going to go up and down these mountain hills and know where to go and how, and also have the training to do a detailed – answer where you're cross-checking the facts that come in and fill out like a 16-page survey, right? Mm -hmm. You need a community member of child of these coffee farmers, many of them now that are in the university, even if it's part-time. And so they brought a wealth of knowledge and they started through this process. And I'd like maybe Madi can talk more, I can talk about how they also started to reflect on their own university training they were receiving and the knowledge that's held by their moms and uh, their dads and their grandparents. I think that generational question was really cool to start talking about. One of the things I'm thinking about as I hear you talk about all these responses to dealing with hunger is that part of the the things that you're talking about are, are, um, you know, how to make food available at a certain, at a lower price or make more food available. But the other part of it is uh, how to confront um, unfair power relationships, especially in gender and between, between campesinos and, and researchers, between men and women, between funders and practitioners. I, I just think it's interesting. You started this conversation saying that, um, this is a collaboration born in revolution. Um, and that the revolutionary aspects of, of confronting power relationships is present in so many of these things that you do. Well, I will say, it's been not always easy. <laughs> um, and I've certainly had to, for my own work, you know, in sort of parsing things out a little, I've had to be very clear 
um, about what is the research component that's, you know, gone through the human subjects approval for the university and clearly explain to the farmers and the community that this information is going to be used for research. Do I have permission to share some of it before it's published, you know, with our local partners, with CAN and Mario Hania and all the rest. And, 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 and that has been exactly, and they get it. Actually, it's really no problem for them at all. The hard part in terms of the power structure has been interpreting that within the university, right? So early on, when I spent time collaborating, writing like this follow-up proposal for this project that, that was led as a whole team, right? With, with protocol up and everybody there, you know, I said, well, look, we got a, you know, a large grant to do the second phase of the project for four years, five years, right? Um, but that didn't really count through the university because it wasn't run through the university, right? And so I've also learned to sort of parse it out and explain up, right? So explaining down, I think, or, you know, down in the in the hierarchy of society, not the way that I think about it, but um, explaining to the farmers, the local co-ops, the NGOs, they pretty much get it. They want me to sort of clear, to be clear about, you know, what's what, but they get it, that some is for research. But the research is going to be used for development and change. But explaining this process up through the evaluation process has been a challenge. And I've, I've finally figured out how to do it more and have – we'll be starting future work that's kind of more pure on the science side with still many implications for for development and change. Um, within our own relationship, I mean, navigating the power dynamics is not always easy um, either. And within the co-op as well. I mean, the, there's all these different levels of these – um, conflicts. I think the biggest way, though, is to really get for me, and I want to hear what you have to say about this too, Marty. Is I think that people need to see acknowledge these like, dynamics that are out there. First of all, right. So historically, you know, NGOs have been um, sort of above, you know, above the farmers, and they kind of get participation based on payment or or not, and they justify and exaggerate their impacts, and they've done a lot of great work too. Um. And the donors usually kind of run the show a little bit, right? And I think in this case, what was interesting is it started out where we really pitched a partnership-based model. And and when once I think some of the stuff we we're talking about earlier, we said we're willing to negotiate budgets and we're willing to really share vision. But even then, we still had conflicts of knowledge, right? When we started talking about home gardens, all the agronomists at the co-ops were ta- were thinking about like a you know two rows of radishes in their back in, in the backyard what they learned in agronomy school. And, you know, from a research perspective, I was interested in, you know, what's the concept of home gardens here? And what we realized is there needed to be a shared dialogue about even a basic interpretation of something like that. And the, the way we addressed that really was through these agroecology short courses that are organized through the Community Agroecology Network and with Steve Gleesman and and others that have helped put those on. I think that, don't you think that's been pretty key well, for that? From the training perspective, Especially for the for the agronomists that we 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 are calling them now agroecologists, mm-hmm. and was the international agroecology short course. Yeah. But uh, for farmers, all our partnership with Programa de Campesino Campesino yes. Pickup it has been a key element, and it took some time too to establish this relationship because in the beginning was it is a competition it is kind of conversion you want to convert ants to be a movement or what is all this about or you want us to apply the methodology that they're applying and the pickaxe uh, team was saying we are not just a methodology we are and and all this conversation, but we saw the potential and how to bring them together. 
because they have long history, but they are not working together, even if they are in the same region. And it's easier when you are like academic to see or community organizer to see that potential. And, but it took at least one and a half year, two years to really coordinate, coordinate an agenda between both of them and create the trust. But between farmers, it was like open up their whole vision yeah. when they visit, they, they, they did the farmers to farmer exchange, exchanges. They went to Honduras, they went to different parts of Nicaragua, and also the farmers from, from Pecac visit the farmers because they wanted to know about coffee because they are cultivating more like uh, beans and corn and vegetables and how they did the work and they were more open. And after the uh, second exchange, Everything started like, you know, like moving. I call it like um, a spider movement when it has uh, too many, uh, many legs and gets stuck and doesn't want to move. But when it moves, it moves and check the whole web. I, it was like moving a network. There was no way to control it. And I love it because it was okay. It doesn't matter. It, you have to keep, you know, like keep like an act of balancing a little bit saying, okay, toward this direction or toward this other direction, but it's no way to control it. And as a researcher, you can't document all of this. You can only really do these periodic interviews, focus groups and surveys and talk about part of it. But there's now that this sort of spirit of experimentation that was already there has started been unleashed. We, you know, and who knows what's going to, I mean, we want to, to systematize a little bit of it, but it, that, that sort of, that sort of alive experimental aspect of their work. And it's also seen through the seatbacks is really right. Yeah. And the training, I think the training, they are different kind of trainings, not just the farmers to farmers exchanges, but I mentioned that the farmers led experimentation that is part of the training too. And they are at least 700 farmers involved in the experimentation. They only, they were only eight in the beginning. Because it's, we, we, we didn't know it's a good methodology. Are they open to do that? How we will reframe this? What will be with the academic criteria or will be with the more like open criteria from, because they are science too? But from farmer's perspective and how we will do the combination and we have been applying the combination. Say, okay, this we will call open experimentation and the other we call more academic experimentation that are more like led by, um, they have more restrictions. So like and, re- replicated plot trials for an agroecological sort of milpa management. Because a lot of farmers, when we start out, wanted to see, well, how effective are all these organic strategies? I mean, people are used to applying a little bit of herbicide and and um, some urea. Even though they're growing organic coffee, they're used to applying some herbicide and some urea, which is nitrogen fertilizer to the corn if they have it on hand, right? And so... We set up a side-by-side experiment to compare these two that was um, really organized. This was really set up more through the project than through the university, but it was to compare these results. So it's kind of more of a systematic approach. And But the much bigger part has been the open experimentation, yeah. really, that draws heavily on the Campesino-Campesino approach. And I just want to say before we continue that the pulling – so the idea of uniting the, some of the social process methodology of Campesino Campesino with the organizational capacity and export and uh, of the fair trade co-ops is something that's been, in my mind and probably others for a long time, many, right? 
Um, but as Mario Henia said, it hasn't come together in practice because that's the hard work, right? Mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out to Eric Holt Jimenez from Food First because when in the early stages of this work, I knew we need somebody on the ground to help make the, part of this happen. And he suggested um, uh, a member of the National Coordinating Committee, Jorge Aran, from um, Campesino Campesino. And so in Nicaragua, in Nicaragua who's, li- who's from there. So he and he was willing to work as an advisor to this initiative and really has been a key player together with the real openness on some of the co-op rural development and agronomy team. But I do remember some of those early meetings, right? And he's like, look, you know, if we're talking about movement, we're cooperative movements, no problem. But like campesino movement, I'm not so sure, right? And so <laughs> there's not like there is just this big embrace. <laughs> but then, and you, here is the technology to me and the change that really made it run, which Mariani has referred to a couple times already, both in terms of the donors and also in terms of the combination of these strategies. It's really around these community-based seed banks. Because I still remember a first meeting up in Cantagallo above in Condega with one of the donors was actually there and the agronomists were still there. And they're still pretty much like, we are the agronomists. We know what's going on. You know, they'll, and they pulled and they did some participation, but they were, it was, you know, it, and they were promoting organic coffee, but it was still pretty straight up, you know, um, you know, here are the, here are the suggestions, follow them. And they were talking. I said, well, what kind of seed, what kind of varieties of corn do you have here? And then, and then, Douglas, one of the farmers said, well, this is Juan Bente Tres and this is Olotillo. And this is, and he started to go through these different varieties and which one he would try to plant and when. And at that moment, it was interesting because all of a sudden, you know, one of the agronomists was just, was totally blind. I mean, he did not, he couldn't get to the level of crop varieties that were adapted for the zone. And the donor representative who then has since moved on, Rick, Rick was like, he saw that knowledge that was embedded there. And then I think once the farmers visited a community-based seed bank, this wasn't really even thought of an initial project. They visited one in San Ramon, which is another place where the community agroecology network works. But it's actually they visited a seed bank that was organized by Campesino Campesino. They came back. And since then, Mario Henia knows better how fast it has moved through the co-ops. Yeah, we have uh, seven seed banks established in the uh, La Segovia project. They are other projects in Cannes that also had um, seed banks established after that. And with Prodecop, more than 500 farmers have been involved. They have been receiving seeds from the seed banks. And we are uh, working for, with more than 60 varieties now between corn and, and beans. And having like a powerful experience because they knew about um, basic grains, but they have been receiving a lot of uh, technical support for the coffee, not for the basic grains. And knowing the importance of having uh, especially corns and beans during the period of hunger, they were eager to learn and how to uh, access to food, how to store food, and how to produce more food and having more seed available that were resistant to the climate change. That it was another challenge that we have been confronted in the last five years. And, and now with the with the, with the seed banks, they they 
develop their own rules and regulations to minimize it. They have the benefit that it also already this, the, the structure established that was adding a, a, a new strategy and how to um, control their own food system. And they are other cops that are interested in, in establishing the, the seed banks, but sometimes it takes a while, you know, to go to negotiate with the, all the cop members because it's a democracy. Uh, you have to go through the whole process. And, and but after everything got established, it is a powerful uh, strategy, I would say. And we have been facing with the government in Nicaragua and all the um, um, business who sell seeds, they prepare the whole package. They say the improved seed plus the fertilizer plus all the kind of things. And the agronomists say, what if we, we have to prepare like our ecological package too? Because they are having a big competition on the ground. And when you see a farmer that is not completely convinced, it's just easy to go and get into that and buy the whole package. But when you have a farmer that is 100% convinced, it's no way that he will buy those kind of packages. And now we have the whole group of uh, farmers that are like preaching to each other, you know, saying, okay, we will show you with this proof how this is. I, I met um, the one from San Antonio that he's so happy that during the last uh, drought, 2014, he said, you no, know, the other farmers, they, they planted their seeds. They didn't have a, a harvest, but I was able to have 12 quintals or this type of corn from the parcel that I planted. And, and people look at me and say, are you like performing miracles? And I say, Yes, <laughs> it's the type of seed that I got, and I uh, I gave some of the seed to other farming. He was able to have food, and he was so happy sharing the result of his experimentation, saying, "Here is the corn, is um, the varieties, and my uh, Mario, my son, they call because it's a big, big seed." Say, "Here is." We are able to have food, and you see how farmers are. Uh, is empowering them. And when they say, okay, we are, we are able to fulfill this goal, not for the project, uh, is for myself and for my family. And I want to share this knowledge with other farmers. And this is for me revolutionary, you know, being open because there is a moment we were so tired of being volunteers during the revolution. There was a moment in Nicaragua history that nobody wanted to keep volunteering for different activities. And, and now seeing this attitude about, I want to share because I know that the other families are living through this situation and I want to share that you have the power to produce food for your family and for your community. And I'm, I'm just fascinated with the whole thing. Of course, there are challenges about power, relationships, and other things. But um, I think acknowledging them, you know, saying embracing the, 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 the existence, just denying them doesn't work. Yeah. And they are, you know, multiples and multiple levels and multiple directions. And so say, and your role is just a facilitating. 
I was talking with the farmers one time about the when you if you attend a concert, you see the you hear the concert, you hear one music, beautiful music, and you don't know how much work is behind that concert. You know how much the director has been working to orchestrate. The director doesn't have to play every single instrument, but he needs to know how to support each musician to, in order for this musician to share the best of him with his instrument or her of her instrument. And when you see every musician playing the best they can do for the concert, it's just amazing. And now they are like, they call participatory concerts and when even the public can be engaged in the whole concert is another level. And and because I have a background as a musician, all the time I try to see, you know, like the, the performance of music everywhere. And and I think this part for the for the communities is easier to get it to say, okay, I don't have to become a violinist. I don't have to become a um I don't have to conduct some surveys. I don't have to go and do this on that, but I am still a farmer and I can put the best of me as a farmer. And they start open up and leading their own research as a farmer and finding their own, finding as a farmer and sharing with everyone mm-hmm. and trusting each other. No, they are not waiting for Chris saying, okay, Chris will come back during his summer break and share his result with us. And, but they also celebrate when we show up and say, here is the summary of our uh, finding the statistic analysis. And, and they say, okay, you know what? Last uh, summer that we present in results, one of the farmers say, I am grateful for those type of moments because some people give you money. But when people give you ideas, ideas are more valuable than money. But if you give me a little bit of money with the good idea, it's also even better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that's very true. And I think that the openness, I mean, we really the bigger change, as is often the case, I think, is from the, the side of the researcher, the development worker, to not only to want to do the participation enough to like adjust the agenda to do something that's inconvenient, you know, like are not going to give you credit because you believe in what's going to happen. Right. Translating the posters and giving them back and explaining. And then you realize the payment is not, you know, that your publication was downloaded one more time or, or reached a stage, which is all important to getting to a wider audience is when the farmers will say something like that or say, look, I really want you know, one time where last time we were there, we're having a pretty serious conversation because right now in Central America, you've got a combination of a drought going into its second year with massive crop failures and a whole dry quarter from, you know, southwestern, western, western Nicaragua, northwestern Nicaragua, El Salvador, parts of Guatemala. You've got a, a going into the second year of a drought, you know, Crop harvests are a little bit up this, this, from this first season, but in general, 20, 30, even 40, 50%, you know, crop failure for corn and bean harvest combined with the coffee leaf rust, which just ravaged through the area. You know, over 50% of the farms in the region have been affected over the last three years and people have lost in, in the survey we did. They lost, you know, last year that, you know, people had lost from 50, more than half the farmers had lost more than half of their coffee. So that's your cash income and then your subsistence crops. 
So this is, again, diversification. Those fruit trees and the work of the women and everything is even more important in these circumstances, right? Um, and yet they're still very open to – so we're, we're in this focus group presenting some of these results and talking about it. And and they – you know, there was for the first time – and I was a little worried because there's some pretty experienced farmers in it, 60 and 70-year-olds. And they're like – there was this sense that there wasn't – they were they were like Chris. We this is this is worse than we've seen it in a long time. You know, we don't like to ask for you know food assistance, right? Because and, and now they can ask for it to some extent through their through their co op. And we're we'd finished the whole meeting. We we're about to go, and a couple of the farmers came up to me, and they had you know they they rebuilt their whole cooperative building and for their first time, and all the, they built one and. And, and they're like, Chris, we want to ask you for something. And I'm like, oh, here, what, you know, like, what's this going to be? Cause you know, we get asked as being, you know, with lighter skin in Central America, usually people will ask for, for money or whatever. And I had no, or, you know, when they know, don't know but, you, but, but they knew me. So I didn't, I figured it probably wouldn't be that direct, right? But I didn't know what they're going to ask for. Like, you know, can you help leverage another expansion of the project, which is really out of my hands? They say, you know what? Is there anybody you can talk to? Because we really want one of these seed banks everybody's been talking about. We want to have access to these seeds. And, and to me, that was really powerful because they weren't asking, they were asking for, they had the knowledge and the access to these resources. And I think the next step in this project is really to work with a, a down to earth, highly trained participatory seed um, specialist who really can get into the nitty gritty of the varieties, what types of work, what kinds of crosses from different regions can work and pull genetic material in, but with, but also respect the ownership, the history and the aspirations of the farmers in this process. So it's not a closed kind of internal only strategy, but it's a delicate process where the introduction of new participants needs to be vetted by multiple, by, by all of those that are actively involved. And I want to add about the um, training and surveys and youth. Um, I think without planning it, we have been training a team. Yeah, and that's right. A whole yeah. team. And they are young people that had the energy and the enthusiasm. And I think some of them were in high school when we started. Yeah. And we try to, and this was part of the can, not as a part of the project, but part of the can commitment to look for funding for scholarships. And 10 of them have been receiving scholarships. And I think at least 15 uh, food security promoters. But in the beginning, they were like uh, enthousi- enthusiastic uh, youth who want to uh, participate in some ways in, inside the whole initiative. And we started with the diagnostic saying, okay, we will design a sorbet, apply the sorbet. But after that, because we went back, we have the whole monitoring uh, system. Uh, besides uh, all the um, research that we have been conducting together with Chris, and every year we apply different survey. We have internal data and the uh, outside data that we have been doing. And we ha- have been inviting other people who have been conducting research in the same area too with the same project. But they have been receiving at least five years of training. And you can see how they can, if you show up saying, okay, I want to apply this survey, they will just put your survey upside down, say this question doesn't apply. Because we have been discussing with them how to adapt 
uh, a specific tool and Cultural what is the language, language from the existing survey exactly questions. with the coping mechanism we went through like at least three times the application during two years saying okay this question is not appropriate this question have to be um, analyzed in a different way have it to be uh, asked in a different way or the translation was not appropriated or we have been readjusting all they have been learning about that about methods about methodology about informed analysis informed I mean, consent getting the letters the idea of being trained about what is the ethical conduct of research of getting oral and then written permission from the people that they're surveying and also um they know that they, we will hear them when they have opinions in the beginning they were really shy saying um uh, maybe you have to ask this and not ask if they want to send their kids to the neighbor's family to be fed because it doesn't sound right. And now say, can we take out this question from this survey? It's not appropriate. <laughs> you know, and uh, you can see when we get together, they are sometimes equal prepared as us. They go with their copy of the survey. They tie all their notes, everything they have been doing during the whole last six months. And we sat down. They already know what time we arrived. That is during the summer break here. That is between June and July for us or around December. They already know. And they are prepared. They are waiting and they all accommodate their agenda. We have to nego negotiate the agenda before we arrive saying, okay, because they have to negotiate with their universities or now they are called... Um, Food security promoters, they have a title and uh, part of the extensions of the uh, um, agronomists. And they're all paid through the cooperative structure. It's and a they're getting scholarships. Stipend. Yeah, it's more like a stipend. But they're getting scholarships to pay for part of their education. So a lot of these. So now you have, this is the interesting thing. You have children of coffee farmers, some of which are illiterate, many of which have average, I think the average in the last survey is maybe three or four years of, you know, primary school education. So their children are now graduating from uni from four-year and five-year degrees in universities. So I think what's interesting then is that they are now graduating from the university and they're thinking they're going to bring in the ideas that they've learned from their, from their youth, from, from their childhood, from their parents and from their grandparents and what they've learned through working with the cooperatives and the specific initiative. Um, and some of the, the training for conducting research. And I'm really excited to see where they take this. And I want to add one more piece, which is part of the intercultural piece, is through my research at Santa Clara University, we have been, when we do these surveys, the only reason we're able to, to, to really get the kind of reach, and I think participatory action research expands. There's a great article um, by Rachel Morello Frosch from Berkeley and Carolina Balsas that talks about how the participatory action research expands the reach, the relevance, and the rigor because um, of the research, because of the of the actual engagement in terms of questions that people care about. And I think we've explained that already through the way survey questions are cross-checked and the reach because we can reach, if you're working with 10 or 12 youth promoters who are farmers themselves, you can reach 350 farmers on, on a very low budget with a little bit of seed money, right? And some of the monitoring support from the CAN project. Um, and... The relevance is because you're asking questions about their own lives. But I think what's in also cool is what we do every summer is connect this also to the to what I'm teaching, the food justice class at Santa Clara University, but also we bring two students down from Santa Clara and in the future we'll bring more. 
Um, and these students come and they, before they go, they do lots of work. And it's probably more of the most relevant work is what they do before they go in terms of like sorting through survey data, cross-checking it, data cleaning, all that kind of fun stuff, looking for follow-up questions, designing initial ideas that are, you know, internationally comparable on survey methods or research questions. And then they, or working on this water question. We haven't talked a lot about water topic for future work, but water, the way water intersects with gender and food security is huge. So these, these students come down for usually just two or three weeks. They come be, but they come embedded in this whole set of relationships that have been formed over years, a decade, if you think about it. Um, and they're able to work side by side with this youth from Nicaragua and doing some of this research, right? And then they come back and they have the time to sit at the desk or the GIS system and, and like process the data and present professional posters. And it's been really cool for me to see where these students also on the Santa Clara side come back and what they do. So I'm as interested in what the children of these coffee farmers do now as these Santa Clara students that come back that are about the same age. And I can tell you some of the stories. I mean, the first guy that came, Ian, he came down and he graduated, double major environmental studies and political science. He thought about things for a while. He talked to a lot of friends. He did a little follow-up research assistance work with Community Agroecology Network. And eventually I get this call from United Farm Workers saying, you know, do you know Ian Doherty? We, and a reference check. And so he's worked the last year and a half with United Farm Workers as a community organizer. Another student, Rika, came down. She went and is currently working in Washington, D.C. at the Pew Trust. So people and she took it was a co-author on a peer reviewed publication, a top tier journal. So she took these kinds of experiences and they're talking about these experiences as they're applying to to graduate school and law school and some of the top programs across the United States. So I'm really and I'm wondering the depth of the transformation that happened for both the students that have gone down as well as the, the you know, the students from Nicaraguan University or children of coffee farmers and what where they're going to take some of these ideas going forward. And that's that's exciting to me. And, and we just received, you know, three years of support from the National Science Foundation to do a deeper analysis of this impact of food and water insecurity in the region and also train another group of students from the Santa Clara side. And with hopefully with CAN, we will match them with at least equal number of Nicaraguan students. Um, so I'm excited about that. And it's beyond language. Just for the audience here who are uh, university students and students, when we have the interviews with them, it's like they, they are concerned about language and um culture and other things, most of them, they didn't speak Spanish and they knew that. And they were able, of course, to ask for a little bit of food that they were hungry, a little bit of water, but they were not really able to communicate in Spanish. But after their visit, they realized that the language was not the main barrier that they were able to communicate in some ways. And especially with Ian, I think uh, still the farmers still talk about him because he say, see, see for every question. I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and they still make fun. Say, but they notice that he has a good heart. And they didn't look at what he was just nodding, no, but what he was willing to do. Say, can you like explain me how to use this cell phone? Because we were in that moment, we were uh, doing like a um, pilot project using cell phones to gather the data from the um, Talas. This the community-based uh, brain banks. Yes, and he say, yes, yes. 
But he didn't know how to do it. <laughs> but, but then together, they figured it out. But it was a challenge for him. And then he was really proud. When he, I will say, the visit was important. And he learned a lot. And the farmers, too, learned a lot. But was in the way back when he put a lot of time to go through all the data and help us analyze the data. And when we went back and present the data and saying, okay, this is Ian's work. Just in a couple graphics. Mm -hmm. They celebrate that. They understood that he did his work. And we now are having some clear data that we are able to understand thanks to three months or four months of work that he put, like going through the whole data. And and I think it's, it is a possibility. We will end it with the same words, no? It is a possibility always of collaboration, always a possibility for so, solidarity. And also always a possibility for peace, always for, uh, I will say, cohesion and interaction, you know, and equal opportunities. But we have to look for it. Sometimes they are not like visible there is not the first things that you notice but we have to put we have to look for it and search for it in order to find it thanks so much that was great um as always we mentioned a lot of different organizations and papers and everything we'll have links to all of those and to to the community agroecology network and other organizations that you work with in the show notes that deliciousrevolutionshow.com. And uh, thanks so much for, for your time and for talking about revolution and collaboration and food security with me. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. Satori.com